You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Romans 15, beginning in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel." Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the summer of 1805, a number of American Indians were asked to attend a presentation of the gospel by a group of missionaries back east in Buffalo. The minister got up, gave the presentation of the gospel, explained who Jesus is, about his life, death, resurrection, called them to repentance and faith. And afterwards, it said that a chief named Red Jacket stood up and said, We're told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place the same message. These people are our neighbors, and we're acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat our people, then we will consider again what you've said. In other words, we've heard you, but now we're going to watch you. We're going to take some time to watch. This is what Francis Schaeffer described as the church before the watching world. And he said these words, he said, One cannot explain the explosive power of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. 
The orthodoxy of doctrine and the orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. When the Apostle Paul is reflecting upon the church here in Rome in, chapters, in chapter 15, he commends them for both their knowledge and their goodness. What they knew to be true about God, his character, the gospel about the Christian life, but also how they'd been transformed by that knowledge. How their hearts had been melted, how their lives had been shaped by these truths. When Paul describes the work that God had done through him in these various parts of the world, he points to what is said and what's been done. What's been said and what's been done. I think that this is a very helpful template for us as we consider our call to minister, our call as a church in the 21st century, how we can be a church that is marked by both word and deed. Word and deed. But the problem that we have to acknowledge right now and get honest about is that today, much of Western Christianity is marked by either one, but seldom both. Either there's a big emphasis on learning, getting doctrine right, doctrinal clarity, you know, teaching right biblical truths, but then the church is lacking joy, there's ongoing strife, there's very little concern for the practical and social needs of the community. It's not just, it's not a friendly environment to be a part of. Or there are expressions of Christianity that have a big emphasis on practical care. It's warm, it's welcoming. When you walk in, it feels like you're receiving just a giant hug, but then there's lack of doctrinal clarity. There's compromise in truth. There's shying away from hard biblical uh, ideas and truths like sin and salvation. Ray Ortland made a very helpful diagram that goes like this. Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. Gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. But gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals power. Power. That's the kind of power that Paul is describing here. And that's the kind of power that I want us to see and experience as a church as well. So here's the sort of central idea from this passage, and there were a lot of verses that we're covering tonight, but the central idea, I believe, is this, that the kind of ministry that is both powerful and pleasing to God is one that makes the gospel seen and heard. And that's based on the Old Testament passage in Isaiah that Paul actually quotes directly from here that says, that those who have never been told of him will see. Now that's very interesting and I'll get into that in just a moment. Those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand seeing and hearing if you're taking notes. Let's look first at seeing. Seeing. Now on the morning of the resurrection of Jesus, when two women named Mary went to see the tomb of Jesus, Matthew records that an angel of the Lord appeared and greeted them there at the entrance of the tomb. And what he said to them was this. He said, do not be afraid because the Jesus that you are seeking, the Jesus that's been crucified, 
is risen. He's no longer here. In fact, he's on his way to Galilee just as he told you. But the angel does not say, go tell everyone, just take my word for it, he's not here. Trust me, you don't need to go in there. Trust me, he's not here, go tell everyone. No, the angel of the Lord says first what? Come and see. Come and see for yourself. See the empty tomb. See the evidence of what I am telling you. See the proof of what Jesus can do. And then go tell all your friends. Then go tell all the disciples what you have seen and heard. The same is true with Thomas. Thomas is struggling to believe that this Jesus is risen. And he's very honest. He says in John chapter 20, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I love this. Thomas is really honest. He's saying, I I just can't take your word for it. I don't know about you, but I'm just not wired like that. Thomas is like very, like a lot of us. Like, I, I appreciate what you're believing here, but I can't just believe empty words. I can't just take your word for it. I need some sort of evidence. I need some sort of proof. Days later, the Lord appears to him and quite literally says, see for yourself. Take that hand of yours. Put it in my side. Touch my wounds. Touch my scars. And over the course of weeks, it says that Jesus appeared to over 500 disciples, proving that he had risen from the dead. There's nothing about Christianity that should be, take my word for it. Christianity is not a message of, no, 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 don't don't worry about it, don't think about it, just take my word for it. In fact, we misrepresent the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ when it is simply presented as words to believe with nothing empirical to verify it. But the question for us is how do we verify? How do we prove this truth? How do we back up the claims that this Christ is not in the grave, that he's risen and he's transforming lives today? Well, today, since Jesus ascended and he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell the church, the ongoing proof of Jesus' resurrection remains his body. But by body, I do not mean the simple form of one individual body. What I mean is the church, which the Bible describes as the body of Christ. We are now Jesus' hands and feet to the world. Therefore, we are the way that people will experience and see the grace and power of God displayed wounds and all. In fact, I love this because Jesus doesn't say, look at my glory, look at my light, look at me pass through this wall. He says, look at my scars. Look at my wounds. Look at the source of many of our shame and guilt, the things that we try to cover, the things that we try to keep from people. Jesus says, look at, put your hand right there. Touch my wound, touch my scar." We become the proof of Jesus' resurrection power and his ability to change lives, wounds, and all. Now, in this passage, Paul refers to signs and wonders being performed. And these signs and wonders serve to authenticate the apostolic ministry and words of the Apostle Paul. Now, typically, 
when we think about signs and wonders, uh, signs and wonders, especially because of the sort of influx of the charismatic movement more recently, we typically think of extraordinary things like an arm growing back or like a tooth growing back in a certain place. We think of these extraordinary uh, forms of, you know, miraculous physical healing. And while we do see these things in the Bible, let's not pretend like they're not there. We do see physical healing in the Bible. We do see the miraculous in the Bible. And I'm here to tell you that I've seen countless prayers answered in this church. God healing lives and healing bodies as God's people gathered and prayed. We've seen God do amazing things in our church. But we cannot narrow the meaning of signs and wonders to specifically physical healing. I want you to think about some things right now. I want you to reflect upon your life, our community, the life of our church over the last 14 years. Consider the miracle of being delivered from alcohol addiction. Consider the miracle of being delivered from substance abuse. Consider the the marriages that were completely over, completely over and have been restored. Think about individuals that were enslaved by fear being released. Think about individuals gripped by rage and unforgiveness finding peace and freedom. Think about couples living in sin, finding the gift of repentance and making significant changes to their lives in order to follow Jesus in obedience. Think about the people that made a successful living based on greed and selfishness being transformed to become generous and just individuals. And these are just a few of the testimonies of what God has done in our midst, in our community, in our church. Nothing shy of miracles. Amen. This isn't about living under the burden of having a flawless, perfect life. This is about displaying what God can do when we give up on ourselves and we give up on our attempts to change ourselves and to look like something special and we surrender everything to God. It's when we bring everything to God and we say, there's nothing off limits. There's nothing in my life that I'm holding back. It's all yours to be transformed. It's when we trust God to heal us. Tim Keller, explaining this passage, said these words, we are to dare people to look at us and see what a human life rearranged around the gospel looks like. That's what Paul is encouraging the church to do, to dare the community, to dare friends and family and neighbors and coworkers to see what a life rearranged around the gospel looks like. Yes, this means setting a positive example of obedience to God. Yes, this means that we have to look and live differently than the world around us. But this also means being humble enough to admit when you've screwed up. This means being honest about repentance and, and sin. This means asking for forgiveness. This means admitting when you're wrong. This means admitting when you don't have all the answers. This even means admitting when you have your own doubts about God yourself. It's being honest and open. And like Jesus with Thomas, we are honestly inviting others to see our scars and to see how Jesus has healed our wounds. This is the kind of humble, honest life that opens doors to gospel conversations. But this is also the kind of life that opens doors to ongoing discipleship relationships. Not only introducing people to Jesus, but then 
walking alongside people and helping them to grow and mature in him. I read, I actually heard an interview uh, from a a journalist named David Brooks. He said these words, and uh, I feel like these words are probably gonna stick with me for a long time, and you're probably gonna hear them a lot now in the future, but he he said this. Human beings are decent at learning, but fantastic at imitating. Human beings are decent at learning, but fantastic at imitating. One of the helpful ways of understanding what discipleship is, is apprenticeship. Now I remember being an apprentice for a general contractor fresh out of high school. And I showed up at the job site not knowing anything about construction. I didn't even know how to hold a hammer. I didn't own a tool to my name, I knew nothing. But through this long and at times tedious process of being along for the ride as a house was being built from the ground up, from the foundation process to the walls going up, to the, all along the process to the very, very end, I learned some, like a lifelong, a lifelong set of, of, of uh, tools and understanding and wherewithal where now I was able to go and work on other projects myself, but it all came through this process of watching and participating and making mistakes and having my boss curse me out almost every single day and having to pay for things that I broke and making mistakes and making mistakes and making mistakes and continuing to show up and watching again and humbling myself and watching again and getting my hands dirty and learning and learning and learning. And it wasn't the kind of knowledge that's like head knowledge, it's the kind of knowledge that like sinks down into your bones. The kind that's associated with muscle memory the knowledge that comes by observing and participating. This is discipleship. This is apprenticeship to Jesus. And I recognize that even today, this is the way that I learn best. I was just rebuilding a, um, a gate along our fence line. And we ordered these, these kits, these stabilizers for the back of the gate. It helps keep the gate intact and sturdy into the years to come. And I open up these boxes and I'm looking at these kits and I start looking through these directions and almost immediately my eyes started to blur. You guys know this sensation? Like what is going on? What are these figures and these words and all of these numbers? And my eyes start to crisscross and I'm blurred and I'm trying to read it and I kid you not, it took me minutes to realize that I was in the French section. Like, I'm not even reading English here. I was just so confused by this. And I realized that I'm a hands-on visual learner. Like, don't tell me. That's fine, don't tell me. Show me. As I've heard it said before, Christianity isn't just taught, it's caught. Hey, come watch. Yes, I learn through listening. Yes, it kind of comes with the job. I learn through reading. But I think the deepest, most formative way of learning is through imitation, through imitation. Paul would instruct the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter three, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Watch how I follow Jesus, and watch those who've set an example. Follow that example. You need something tangible, you need some handles, you don't do well with abstract and theoretical, I got good news for you. Jesus has given you something for that. It's called imitation. He would say to the church in Corinth something very similar. Follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. 
This is the call of making disciples. The call of making disciples is very simple. Here it is. It's inviting people to observe what a life following Jesus looks like and then inviting them to join as well. This is what Paul is doing. This is what Paul intends to do when he comes to Rome. He intends to show them how to pray. He intends to show them how to give. He intends to show them how to serve. He intends to show them, seeing. But secondly, what we also see here is hearing, hearing. And it's important to mention that with all this emphasis on the practical stuff, the watching, the seeing, in no way am I saying that words don't matter. In no way am I saying that words are less important. In the Gospel of John, Simon Peter is confronted with the choice of whether or not to follow Jesus into the very, very difficult path of discipleship or to follow everyone else, to follow the crowd that was abandoning Jesus and leaving. And Jesus turns to Simon Peter and he asks him a very pressing question. He says, you going to? You remember the scene in John chapter six? And Peter makes an amazing, says something amazing in response. He says, to whom else would we go? Where else would we go? For you alone have the what? Words of eternal life. Where else would we go? We are created in the image of a speaking God who spoke the world into being, who speaks to us through the scriptures, who is speaking to us through his son, who is now bringing new life to the world through a spoken message called the gospel. This all means that our words are absolutely necessary. Paul said earlier in Romans, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Words are powerful. The Proverbs describe words as having and possessing the power of life and death. Words are how we impart meaning, how we impart ideas, how we impart emotions and identity and affection. I was just having a conversation with a friend recently, and he was telling me about this newfound appreciation for audio books. And he was explaining that, he, he was saying, you know, I used to read a lot of books, but now I'm having a hard time concentrating, I'm having a hard time sitting down and focusing on what I'm reading. And, and as I heard him explaining, I could almost sense that there was this, this like embarrassment to say, I used to read books, but now I listen to audiobooks. And let's be honest, some of you readers add to that stigma. You guys are, are snooty little readers. Like, I, I've, I've heard people say like, you know, I'm reading a book and they're like, are you reading it or are you listening to it? <laughs> so we've perpetuated that stigma, but there was almost this embarrassment, like, you know, somehow this made him a less substantial learner. And so I encouraged him that, as I mentioned earlier, Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing. It doesn't say faith comes by reading, although that is true. Faith comes by hearing. And before the scriptures were sacred writings to be read, scriptures were sacred stories to be heard. They were stories that were spoken, heard, memorized, recited, and retold. The faithful witness that we have of God and his character, especially in the Old Testament, was carried through the generation on the wings of words, words. 
And I think why audiobooks and podcasts appeal to us is that it stimulates a community experience of someone speaking and another person listening. Think about this. I can read alone. Oftentimes we do read alone. We don't want any distractions. We don't want any voices. We want to just read alone. That's fine. But I can only hear when someone is speaking. And this is so simple that it may be lost on us, but it's profound. I can only hear something when someone else is speaking. And kind of like you're doing right now, when I'm listening, I am putting myself in a position of vulnerability. I'm putting my, myself in a position of at least moderate trust. And I'm putting myself in a position of mutual submission. I'm closing my mouth, I'm giving you the floor, and I'm hearing what you have to say. It's highly, highly, highly relational. And in a world filled with screens and text and digital visual, visual displays, never have words been more important than now. I, I read an article about Alexa. Let's do a little experiment. Hey, Siri. Okay, good. You don't have that feature on. That's so dumb when you hear Siri that comes up. Okay. So I read an article about Alexa and the rise of other voice technology devices. And in it, an author named Judith, Judith Shulovitz explored the psychology of Alexa. I bet you didn't know that there was a psychology behind this. And in it, she explains really the psychology behind these, start, uh, these smart speakers and why they are so popular today. And she said, it's not just the convenience of a hands-free experience where you can say like, hey Alexa, add whatever to my shopping cart. She said that there's something more, something deeper. And she said this, to understand the forces being marshaled to pull us away from screens and to push us towards voices, you have to know something about the psychology of the voice. For one thing, voice creates intimacy. Voice creates intimacy. Think about a mother with her child, the comfort that comes through voice. And in this article, she gets very vulnerable and she says that more times than she would like to admit, she found herself sitting down with her Alexa-like device and sharing things that she would only otherwise share with her therapist. Things like, I feel empty. I feel alone. I feel depressed. I feel lost. And she waits. And to her disappointment, she receives back some pre-programmed response that said something like, if I had arms, I'd give you a hug. But for now, let me play you music. And she realized what an empty experience. What an empty, 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 empty substitute technology offers that can never, ever, ever replace another person. Another person. People are starving for words and maybe don't even know it. Maybe you're here tonight and you're starving for words in a screen, text, visual inundated world and you don't even know it. We're even hearing that desire among Paul in this passage. Look with me again in verses 22 and 32. He said, I've longed. That, that word doesn't mean I've wanted. That means deeply desired. 
I have longed for many years to come to you so that by God's will I may come to you with joy to be refreshed in your company. It's almost as if he's saying, this letter here, I feel like it's necessary. I'm like an apostle. That's kind of like what I do. I write letters to churches. But there's almost a sense of obligation to write letters. But what his joy would be, what he deeply desires to do is to be with them in person. To see them face to face. The apostle John would put it this way in his letter. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink or text and screen. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. Why? So that our joy may be complete. So that our joy may reach its completion. Meaning, there's something that we just simply cannot experience when our communication is being mitigated and our communication is being translated through pen and paper, screen and text, there's a joy that we can only experience when we're face to face, when we exchange words. And you see, we as the people of Jesus not only possess the ability to speak, but more importantly, we have been entrusted with the words of life. The gospel, the gospel that Paul described earlier in Romans is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God, the creator of all things, loves us. And despite our constant rebellion towards him, he's come to rescue us from our sin, from Satan and death, and to bring us into a renewed life within his everlasting kingdom. The gospel is not a series of instructions about what we need to do to reach God. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to reach us. How he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, to rise powerfully on our behalf. And now he has given us his Holy Spirit, his voice, his comfort to empower us to live transformed lives. And it's this good news, it's these words that Paul says he's eager to preach. He says in verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. There's a lot of things that we can say. There's a lot of things that we can be about. There's a lot of things that we can be passionate about. But this is ultimate. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Now I want to caution you right now. Do not get caught up on this word preach. And I need you to know that I am not the only preacher in this church. To preach is not attached to a specific role. It's not attached to a specific platform. It's not attached to a specific pulpit. It's not attached to a specific gift. The word simply means to bring good news. And so if you're able, sometime this week, to say to the person next to you at work or to one of your friends or one of your family, hey, I saw this new show on Netflix. You need to watch it. Or if you're able to say, hey, I heard about this new restaurant. Let's go check it out. If you're able to say, hey, did you catch the game last week? It was pretty amazing. 
If you're able to say anything remotely close to, hey, have you heard about XYZ? You're in. You got what it takes. Don't sell yourself short. You're already an evangelist. And you're already sharing the good news of the things that you're passionate about. And Jesus is saying, get passionate about this. Because when you're passionate about this word, you're not gonna be able to stop yourself from sharing it with the people around you. Amen? Let me conclude with this. How do we preach the gospel? How do we make the gospel both seen and heard? Well, it's not a formula. Uh, It's not a mantra to recite. And believe it or not, it's not even necessarily a Roman's road to take someone down. One of the best ways to make the gospel seen and heard is by honestly sharing what God has done in your life. It's by showing people how God has woven your story into his story and how his story is a story where Jesus is the hero and you're the redeemed. Friend, the the world does not need another hero's quest which encourages people to venture into the wild alone, to descend into the abyss, to face their monsters, to slay their dragons and to overcome their weakness. What the world is starving for What the world needs most is the good news that Jesus has gone before us, that Jesus has descended into the abyss, that Jesus has faced our monsters, that Jesus has slayed our dragon, and that Jesus gives us strength beyond ourselves. This is how Paul did it, the apostle of apostles, the evangelist of evangelists. He put it this way, for I will not venture to speak of anything except this, what Christ has accomplished through me. What is my message? What Jesus has done through me. What Jesus continues to do. He's the hero of my story. He's the hero of my journey. And he can be the hero of yours as well. There's a hymn that we're gonna sing in just a moment that really captures the heart of our testimony. And it goes like this. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know that he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's our testimony, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.